eternal life. Man, there are a lot of ideas out there about eternal life. And there are tons more where those came from. The reason we're even posing that question directly applies to the vision statement that God, we believe that God has laid over us, on us, and inserted into us as His people as we begin this next season. Building on four decades of rich ministry called Northland Church, this next season is about what our vision statement says, engaging people to be fully alive in Jesus. And it's that vision statement that is to guide us corporately, but also individually. And when we're involved, it's not just for us as an organization, but for us as a movement of God's people. And when you're involved in a movement, the vision for, you corporate, for us corporately applies to me uh, personally and vice versa. It's not just about me helping North and out with their vision, but this vision becoming my vision. And the thing that makes this so exciting for, for me is the, the, the biblical substance to this vision of engaging people to be fully alive in Jesus. Not only does it build so well on the previous vision of Northland over the years, but it is saturated with scriptural truth. This whole aspect of the life of the gospel. And when we talk about the life of the gospel, it's not just heart-beating, lung-breathing life. That's not what the Bible means when it says life only. There are many times at bios, biological life is what's being referred to, but tons more. It's talking about a life of God, a life in which He restores us into the original purpose that we're made for. And so that's what this vision's about. We're just spending, during this vision series in August and September, unpacking that more. So today, uh, let's go a little bit further and talk about English. Actually, not English. Let's talk about Old English. Anybody here know about Old English? You're afraid to raise your hand, aren't you, because you think he's going to then ask me some question about… How about Middle English? Anybody here ever heard about Middle English? If you're a literature person, you probably do. Let me give you a hint. Middle English is what a guy named Geoffrey Chaucer used. He wrote something that was pretty substantial. Anybody know what it is? Canterbury Tales. Back in 1387 to 1400, during that span, he wrote Canterbury Tales. So, I, just maybe tomorrow at work, somebody says, what'd you do this weekend? You can say, we talked a little bit about Middle English and Geoffrey Chaucer. Just to enable you to do that, let me give you a verse from the Canterbury Tales. You ready? Okay. It's Labor Day. You got to do a little labor on Labor Day and labor with learning this. Here we go. We witten not what thing we pray and hear. We fare, and as he that drunk is as a mouse, a drunk man woot well, he hath a house, but he newt which the right way is fitter. That'll change your life right there. <laughs> All right, let's, that's Middle English. Let's uh, get a little bit closer to us. Try it again. We know not what it is we pray for here. We fare as he that's drunken as a mouse. A drunk man knows right well he has a house, but he knows not the right way leading thither. All right, we're making some progress, but that's still not down to my level, so let's try it one more time. A drunken man knows he has a home, but he doesn't know how to get there. That's a powerful statement. 
a funny statement. It's a sobering statement, no pun intended. It's a statement that is embedded in so much of the arts, songs that we talked about a couple of weeks ago where I said so many songs, we did the name that tune, have to do with our longing. It's that longing for home. Uh, it's not just describing a drunken man. What, what Chaucer is doing is tapping something that's true about every human being. We all know we've got a home, we just don't know how to get there. We all know that there is a thirst, there's a yearning, there's an angst in us, and we're trying to figure out what is it about? What is it that I'm after? What will, what will quench my thirst? It was the basis of a conversation Jesus had with a woman by a well in Samaria 2,000 years ago. We looked at it a couple of weeks ago, that woman by the well story. And in John chapter 4, verse 10, Jesus answered her, and he said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, so he's using, they're sitting at a well, he's using that as a metaphor for what he wants to talk to her about, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She responded back and said, well, I, where can I get this? You don't even have anything to draw with. He said, no, you're not following. I'm not referring to this literal water. I'm referring to something else. I'm referring to a thirst that's deeper than just the thirst for physical water. And he says this in verse 13 and 14, Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water. Get it, get it, here we go. Welling up to what? Welling up to eternal life. So what he's doing is relating our thirst with eternal life. He's relating that yearning for home with eternal life. That longing, that, that, that's always in the background noise of every one of my days, ultimately is for eternal life. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He, he calls that yearning, uses a, he used a German word. C.S. Lewis, one of the greatest apologists of the 20th century. You've not read any of his stuff, Mere Christianity, uh, Chronicles of Narnia, Great Divorce, the Problem of Pain. Uh, he, he called it Sinsucht, a German word that means angst, yearning, thirst, deep, deep hunger. Lewis said the first time he encountered it, he remembered encountered it, he was six years old. His family had just moved to a new home on the outskirts of Belfast, and he looked at the distance at the Castle Ray Hills, and, and he said, those, those hills evoked something in me that they would not satisfy. And throughout his journey of leaving the church into atheism, he said, my zinsuk, my hunger, my thirst was my companion. He later said it was a thirst for joy. He didn't know what else to describe it as, but, but this a, a deep sense of joy that he could never feel like he, he obtained. So he moved into atheism and into the occult, into sensuality, but then uh, he became an Oxford Don. He was uh, one of the most brilliant professors. In fact, his contemporaries referred to him as the most well-read man of his time. 
and deep thinker. So he's continually grappling with reality and spirituality and our existence and this thirst, this zinzucht. And so he be, the iceberg of his heart began to thaw. He moved from atheism to agnosticism, from agnosticism to deism, from deism to theism, from theism to biblical Christianity to the point of trusting Christ as his king and his savior and becoming related to his, uh, his, his theism, referring to himself as the most reluctant convert in all of England. But he said, throughout that journey, what accompanied me was my sinsot, my longing, my thirst. It's what we have in common as human beings created in the image of God. It's part of the imprint that's on us. When I say longings, I'm not referring to a longing for a cheeseburger or longing for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers to win the Super Bowl. I'm talking about long, sorry to disappoint you there, but I'm talking about longings for things like significance and intimacy and love. We looked at these a couple of weeks ago. Security, impact, connection, wholeness, meaning, purpose, acceptance, shalom, goodness, truth, beauty, joy, home, story, destiny, freedom, uh, justice, resolution. That list goes on and on. This is our common inheritance as human beings. We, we have this deeply embedded in us. Lewis referred to it as a music that we're born remembering. I found a poem of his one time. I was in a used bookstore out in Oxford, England, out across the street from Christ Church. And I don't know what it is about used bookstores. I just love them. I don't know if it's the smell, the mustiness. I don't know if I get high on the mildew or what, but I, I love them. And I go in, I found this book called Poems that had been put together after his death. And here's a poem that he wrote called Vowels and Sirens. He says this, a vanished knowledge was their intemperate song. A music that resembled some earlier music that men are born remembering. He says, we're all born remembering a music. And so, you know, when you're saying, man, I've got this, this tune in me. Where, where did it come from? He says, what all the gods refuse, the backward journey to the steep river's hid source, the great returning, the sirens feign to give. So we want to trace that music we're born remembering, but the gods won't let us. And the sirens, those mythological creatures that would lure sailors to their death by distracting them from the course that they should take, the sirens are the ones that mess that whole process up. And Lewis related that to his Zinsuk, obviously, of, of a music that we're born remember, these, these longings. This woman had deep longings. She thought that she was going to address her longings through men, through marriage, lots of cultural factors going on there. And it, there, it's true for all of us. We all have those things that we are go-tos that we think will quench our thirst. And here's what Jesus is saying when he, he uses that phrase, eternal life. He said, what you are ultimately thirsty for is eternal life. Every one of those longings we put up on the screen a minute ago are tributaries or rivers that come out of the great reservoir, the life of the gospel, the life of Christ, or eternal life. 
So this notion of engaging people to be fully alive in Jesus, we better gain more and more of an understanding because it's so central to the gospel message. Let's gain a better understanding of what being alive, fully alive is. And that's going to start with understanding this notion of eternal life in a broader way than we typically do. Here's the deal. When I say eternal life, what do you immediately think of? First response. Heaven. Most people think eternal life and heaven are the same thing. They are not. They are not synonymous. Before you get your heresy uh, uh, grenades out to throw them at me, put it this way. In heaven, we will experience eternal life in an undiluted, unthwarted, unobstructed, perfect way. But heaven is not the same thing as eternal life. In fact, eternal life is something that's for now as well as then. Let me give you some realities that if we're going to understand what it means to be fully alive, we've got to understand eternal life in these ways that are a little bit different twist on how most people view eternal life. Let me look at them one at a time. First, first off, eternal life, and these have to do with our longings. My longings are directly connected with eternal life. They're, they're embedded in there. My longings are present as well as future. Eternal life is present as well as future. I have a longing for something right now, but I have a longing for something down the road. Eternal life is for now and then. When does life begin is the big debate in ethical, medical, uh, philosophical circles. And it's a huge question that has enormous implications. And we're, we live in a culture that short circuits and, and, and says it, it, human life doesn't begin until later. Because of that later beginning point, there are all sorts of tragic decisions that we're making about uh, unborn, just calling them fetuses and tissues and, and, and so forth. Parallel to that, and I'm not minimizing that, I'm elevating this whole notion of eternal life. For me to say eternal life begins later than it really does has tragic consequences for us as human beings, for as a church, because eternal life does not just begin when I die. Eternal life begins the moment that I trust Christ. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse 24. He says, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. It's not future tense, has it right now. You might think, okay, well, that's just referring to you got the card now. You've got the heaven card, and, uh, so it, we're, you're good to go. No, he, wants, he goes further. He says, it will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. When I believe, and we're going to talk more later in, the, in September about uh, what it means to believe, but when I trust Christ in saving faith, I'm transferred from this realm of death to this realm of life. It happens immediately. I might not look any different on the outside, but on the inside, I have all of a sudden been translated from being a dead man walking to being a live man walking. This whole notion of eternal life, it's for now as well as future. And so when you see the phrase eternal life in Scripture, 
Sometimes it's referring to both. Sometimes it, it has more of a slant to now, sometimes more of a slant to the future. Let me give you some examples. Here's some uh, present tense references to eternal life. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, Paul writes to his buddy Timothy, he says, fight the good fight of faith, Timothy. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So that taking hold is a, is a daily responsibility. John chapter 5, verse 39, and we'll look at this text more next week. He says, you study the scriptures diligently. This is Jesus speaking to religious leaders, Bible study folks. He says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. Huh. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have eternal life, to have that life that, he's, that they, they think they're going to get from doing the religious thing. Here's some future tense references to eternal life, like Jude 21. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Titus chapter 3, verse 7. So that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. So it's this back and forth understanding now and then. Eternal life is for now, it's for later. And it's understanding that it is not just for later, but right now. And so this whole notion of longings, for me to embrace the eternal life of the gospel will address my longings. Here's a question I got last, a couple of weeks ago after we talked about longings. It's a great question. Are all my longings satisfied in the gospel? Are all my longings, when we trust Christ, will all of our longings be satisfied? I think the answer to that is yes and no. It all is a matter of when those longings are satisfied. Let me put it this way. Uh, back a few years ago, we were, as a family, driving in, out west. We had gone from Colorado to Oregon to a friend's wedding, and we're driving back. Andrew, our oldest son, had a brand new driver's permit. I don't even think the ink was dry on it yet. And we're driving through Wyoming. Anybody been to Wyoming? You know what it's like driving to Wyoming? I mean, it's beautiful, but there ain't nothing there but straight road forever and ever, it seems. You're just go, driving and driving. As a result, you need to be careful about your gas consumption because there are not gas stations every exit like there are in a lot of other parts of the country. We're tired. We're going through Wyoming. Everybody falls asleep, but Andrew, who's driving, he's listening to music. He's, he's into it. And then all of a sudden, he has an uh-oh moment. He looks down, sees the light blinking, and realizes, he says, Dad, I am so sorry. I've been paying to the gas. And I just, you're learning to drive. That's something you don't, you got to remember to keep an eye on the gas consumption. And he says, we're just about out of gas. Now, that's not that big of a statement when you're in uh, Altamont Springs. But when you're out in the middle of Wyoming to say we're about out of gas and it's the middle of the night and there is no cell phone signal, I'm thinking this could be a problem. Nighttime, no cell phone, running out of gas. Every horror movie I've ever seen in my life starts coming back. <laughs> so we start looking for signs to, for, for, for gas stations. And in our conversations that were getting kind of urgent, the rest of the family kind of groggily comes awake. And all of a sudden, we're all looking. So bottom line, here's the way I would describe it. Each of us, the entire family, had a deep and intense longing for gasoline. 
And so we're looking at these signs. There's one old worn out sign, the, the paint's coming off, it's, it's not credible at all. You're thinking, I, I don't even think that gas station still exists. And we're, I'm, we're sweating it more and more. Our longing for gasoline is becoming more and more intense. And then we see it. It's a sign, brightly lit, brand new sign, all crisp and well, you know, this has just recently been put up and it gives the number of miles. So it's for a gas station and restaurant and it gives the number of miles to that gas station. Compared that we compared the number of miles on that sign with the number of miles on the gas gauge in terms of how many miles you got before you're, you're empty and going to be abandoned to all horror stories in Wyoming. Uh, and that mileage number, those two mileage numbers, it was wonderful because that mileage number was bigger than this one. So we knew we were going to make it to the gas station. All right, let me ask you this. Do you think we all relaxed at that moment? Absolutely. <sighs> was our longing for gasoline satisfied at that moment? Yeah. Mm. I got a church fight going on here. <laughs> this is how I put it. Our longing for gasoline was not satisfied 60 seconds after we saw that sign. But our longing for gasoline was addressed. And it was addressed confidently. We totally relaxed because there was a credible advertisement that we knew it was coming. Here's the deal. In the gospel... The moment I trust Christ, there are many of those longings that are satisfied immediately. There are some others, we're still in the fallen body, still in the fallen world, that are not yet uh, satisfied, but are addressed in the gospel, in the credibility of the gospel, validated by the resurrection of Jesus. So I can be assured in this balance of now and later that my longings are satisfied and are all at least addressed in the gospel. That's the hope of the life of the gospel. That's the hope of eternal life. And it's that hope of them being addressed down the road that even impacts me today. So that's one. Yeah, that's the beauty of the gospel, absolutely. Number two, if I'm going to understand eternal life, I've got to realize not only is it present as well as future, it is experience. Secondly, it's experience as well as status. Eternal life is experience as well as status. When I say status, I mean kind of who I am. Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 4, but because of His great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It's by grace that you've been saved. So he says, what's significant about coming to Christ is you now have been made alive. Again, might not look that different on the outside, but I have been made alive. I who was dead in my trespasses and sins, my humanity muted, I'm now alive. My status, instead of being someone who is dead, is now someone who is alive. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're a follower of Jesus, you're both equally alive in terms of status. I don't know your journeys at all, but I would know that if you're, if you're in Christ, you're equally alive. In fact, you're fully alive by way of status. But I'm not sure that you are equally experiencing that life of the gospel. 
I don't, I don't know your journey. Because the experience is part of this whole notion of being fully alive. It's status first. Once I come to, to Christ, I enter a new status of being alive. But now comes the growth in Christ's process in which I learn more and more to experience the life of the gospel on a daily basis. You might remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about life in His name. It's an experiential term. What's it look like to experience the gospel at work, at home, in recreation? So I gave you some, uh, 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 an example of status. Here's a, an example of the, of the eternal life and the life of the gospel being experienced. Romans 5, 17, he says, for if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? I love that phrase, reign in life. It's not referring to rising above all life situations. Reigning in life is reigning in the life of the gospel. Have, living my life according to a different cadence. And here's the tragedy. There are a lot of people who have the status of being alive in Christ, but they're not experiencing that life in Christ. And a lot of unbelievers would say, you know what? I like my experience better than I'm, what I'm seeing in that person's experience. And we'll talk a little bit more about that next week as well. But it's getting, it's, it, 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 it's so helpful to right away understand eternal life is both experience as well as status. I, coming to Christ, I now have the status of somebody who's been made alive, who's inherited eternal life, who's a possessor of eternal life. Now we've got to determine how much am I going to experience it. I've gotten a comment already this weekend. A couple of people said, hey, early on, I was disappointed you didn't have a prop. And I, you make me nervous when you don't have a prop. I don't always have props, but I do have a prop uh, this week. You just haven't seen the prop yet because the prop hasn't walked up on the stage. My prop this weekend is six foot three. His last name is Hurd. And I, uh, it, he's one of my sons and once a son, always a son. You can lure your sons and get them to do all sorts of stuff if you promise them t-shirts. So Andrew, uh, this is Andrew Hurd, my oldest son, who's with us this weekend. Hey, buddy. There you go. Almost as good as Skittles. <laughs> so I have, I've, Arlene, I have three sons. She'll tell you she has four boys. Three of them are sons, and which is accurate. There's Andrew and his younger brother, Joel, and youngest brother, Stephen. And over the years, we've all grown up together. One of the things in this whole notion of growing up is this life of the gospel and this present tense aspect of eternal life. And what I've started referring to even with them is life with a capital L. And I ended up writing a book for them as well as for the church about the importance of this and trying to unpack it some. And, um, and they got that, they understood I was, that, that's what I was writing it for. And, but a couple of years later, they get together, all boys are out of the house, so you guys get together via Skype or, or some type of technology. Every now and then you'll let me join you if I'm really nice, but so, you, what do you call it? Bro call. The bro call. Yeah. So the three brothers, one of the things we've talked about over the years is being a band of brothers, and I'm privileged to be part of that. But as guys, I won't always be with you. You've got one another. And they have intentionally forged that relationship with them, and that's been a big priority. So they get together in these bro calls, and they have accountability time, some scripture study time. And a couple of years ago, I said, hey, what are you guys studying? And they kind of surprised me. They hadn't told me. They said, yeah, we're going through your book again. I said, really? 
That's pretty cool. So as you're going through this whole book about the life of the gospel uh, a second time, I know you've read the book a couple of times, what, what was it that impacted you as you guys were having these bro calls on a weekly basis, unpacking this present tense life of the gospel? I think one of the big things for the three boys is just having grown up with you and seen these lessons, it's really cool to read that book and almost feel like we're having a conversation with you. You know, we can hear your voice. It's the three of us, but you know, sometimes you can't be there. A lot of times we're all over the place, you know, three different time zones, maybe Alaska, West Coast, Colorado, maybe some new time zones. Um, It's just hard to be together sometimes. So it's really cool to get together and kind of have all four boys and hear your voice uh, listening to that. But I think another thing is um, just being able to see how you and mom experience this gospel life, this Christ-given life, and this eternal life now as, you've, as we've grown up and as you've parented us like has been just really cool because you, you wrote these things down for us, but we got to see you guys live it out. So. It's really cool to kind of relive that a little bit every time we read the book. I said I would keep it together. I'm keeping it together. So, Andrew, um, thank you for saying that, by the way. Andrew uh, graduated from the Air Force Academy a few years ago, has been was stationed in Alaska. It's, yeah. Uh, and then in, in Utah, he's a captain in the Air Force, and I mentioned to you guys a couple of weeks ago he's being deployed. I did not mention, I don't think, where. I've gotten his permission to say Afghanistan. I can say no more than that, but and I'm, I'm not saying when he's being deployed, but it's shortly. And you're going to be over in Afghanistan as a captain in the United States Air Force for a length of time, maybe a year, not real sure. What difference will the life of the gospel make in your journey over there? Does he ask you guys these hard questions too, or is it just us? Okay, good. Um, I mean, I think it's one thing to experience that life of the gospel here, you know, when you're doing your everyday job. There's a my favorite chapter in the book is the chapter about heart, and there's a, a section in there where you talk about the heart being both the battleground and the dance floor of life, and uh, big L life. And it's, that's got new meaning for me recently in the last few months, that battleground. It might be a little more realistic than it has been in the past. Um, everyday life, well maybe not, you guys drive on I-4 every day. Like, I've been here for four days. I never want to drive on that road again. I'm going to be totally fine riding in helicopters for the next year. Totally cool with that. Um, but yeah, whether it's my office space there or your office space here, you know, that can be a battleground or it can be a dance floor, you know. So I think whether it's a board meeting or parent-teacher conferences, I think just having that outlook that, you know, it's a battleground, but it's also a dance floor and just having your heart engaged in that. Wow. So, all right, what, what, so what's it, if you could describe in one word what that present tense experience of the life of the gospel looks like, what would you say? Well, I'm, I am a herd. My last name is Herd, so it's hard for me to use just one word to describe something. 
Um, I think first is uh, great. Is, Thank you so much. <laughs> all right. <laughs> is uh, is grace. I think the grace that we've received is is huge, and that leads for me to hope, and uh, in whatever situation we're in, and that hope that we can look forward to that eternal life, but also the the joy that we have in that life now that we can experience every day. You know, whether you're driving to work or, you know, going to visit somebody in the hospital or, you know, just hanging out at dinner with your family. I think whatever the situation, you can have that grace and hope and the joy that comes from that. That's awesome. That's awesome. I, um, <laughs> you know, I haven't said this in any of the other services, but sitting over there with you, being able to put my, as I have over the years, uh, used to be a little bit smaller, and being able to put my hand on your shoulder and worship with you as a brother in Christ, and to be able to say in our Father's house are many rooms, and the hope that we have, and I'm looking forward to uh, uh, singing that with you again someday and worshiping, but in the meantime, know that we'll all be praying for, and we're grateful for your heart, for your, your following of Christ, and your service to our country. Thanks. I love you. You know, I like you guys, but the fact that you, you love on my son makes you, me like you even more. So thank you. Um, let me give you the, the, the last two quickly. A third reality about eternal life that's important for us to start unpacking is that reality is not just uh, about something that's present as well as future. It's not just about experience as well as status, but it's about quality as well as quantity. You should think about that for just a minute. Usually when we think eternal life, the first thing that comes to mind is heaven. Second thing that comes to mind is forever, a quantitative word, and uh, which is true. It is a quantitative phrase, eternal life. That's what the adjective means. The problem is we focus so much on the adjective that we ignore the noun life. So it's not just about capital letters eternal and then life being kind of a sidebar thing. It's also about eternal life. And often if we don't emphasize both quality as well as quantity, we start getting off track. In fact, I've sat next to people on a plane and says, I don't want to live forever. I don't want just more of what I'm experiencing now. And they're, they're tapping something. We can get more excited about the quantity the more we understand the quality. We can get more excited about that word eternal the more that we understand that word life. It's quantity and quality equally important. I've told you guys before, I think about me backpacking up in the upper peninsula of Michigan. It's where everybody calls themselves a youper. That's where the youpers are up in the upper peninsula. And I got out of the woods after about three days, asked a youper. I said, hey, I'm hungry. I've been camping. What, uh, what rec restaurant recommendations do you have? They said, there's only one. I mentioned a diner down the street. I went down the street and it looked at like out of the future, out of the back to the future. You know, it was this metallic building on the outside. You go in, jukebox playing, burgundy vinyl booths in the seats repaired by duct tape and they're sticky because they haven't been washed in three years. And you know, you sit and you can't slide. And 
you grab the menu and you let go and it doesn't let go of you because it's a mess. And the waitress came up, dirty apron, pad of paper, pencil, chewing gum, no lie. It was just like, again, it's out of a movie. She says, well, you have. I said, well, I was trying to just relax a little bit. I said, let me tell you something. I've been in the woods. I'm starving to death. I'm not interested in quality. I'm interested in quantity. She didn't even hesitate. She says, well, you've come to the right place. And when the food came, she was right. There was a lot of it, but it was gross. And so just talking about the quantity without the quality gets us off track in understanding eternal life. In John 10, 10, Jesus said, the thief comes to steal and to kill and destroy, but I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. That's a qualitative statement about this life of the gospel. So it's us learning to unpack that. Let me give you the last one. If I'm going to really grapple with eternal life, it will also involve me not just focusing on the fact that it's, it's present as well as future, not just focus on the fact that it's experience as well as status, not just focus on the fact that it's qual- quality as well as quantity, but focusing on the reality that it's relational as well as locational. Usually we hear eternal life, we think location, heaven. Actually, Jesus defines eternal life. There's only one time in Scripture that He defines it. And he uses a relational context, not locational context. He's not denying that eternal life will be experienced in heaven. That's not what we're talking about. But he's saying the essence of eternal life is relational. John chapter 17, verse 3. His high priestly prayer the night before he gives his life, he says, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. At the core of this life of the gospel is an intimate relationship with God that invades not just church, guys. It invades neighborhoods. It invades army bases. It invades the uh, Afghanistans and the United States and everywhere in between, the highs, the lows. What does that look like? And that's what we must, if we're engaging people to be fully alive in Jesus, us living it out, figuring it out to, so that we can give it away, learning to relate with Jesus daily, moment by moment, not just having a prayer moment at the beginning of the day and not thinking about the relationship the rest of the day, not just having a quiet time and then moving on and living my life like everyone else, but having this relationship with God invade every nook and cranny of my journey. And I, I put together a bunch of phrases it's going to be overwhelming. I'm going to rattle through them quickly. We can make them available to you later. I'm not really interested in you remembering any one, but seeing the overall encompassing factor, just be lucky that I'm stopping where I did. Here's the deal. Eternal life is to intimately, to submissively, to vibrantly relate with God in such a way that it awakens my heart, that that relationship with Him addresses my longings. That my intimacy with Him expands my thinking and deepens my relationships, and broadens my emotions, and permeates my work, and enhances my recreation, and activates my heart, and amplifies my laughter, and authenticates my tears, 
relating with him in such a way that it heals my brokenness and shapes my decisions and stimulates my impact and fuels my compassion and motivates my justice and unleashes my generosity and multiplies my creativity and directs my days and settles my shalom and solidifies my meaning and fulfills my story and leads my journey and solidifies my destiny, restores my humanity and secures me for eternity. It's not just a little compartment over here to the side. For me to relate with God is fully orbed. And it's us engaging one another to be fully alive, fully intimate with the Father so that it invades every nook and cranny of our lives. And may we be known as a church and as a people who relate with God. May we be known by our relational priority to the Father, not our religious reputation. May we be known as men and women who know they're loved and are loving God back. And it makes a life-giving difference, not just in who we are as a church, but who we as a church are in this community, in this culture, and in this world. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you that heaven can come here as we relate with you, as we interact with you, as we submit before you, as we vibrantly relate with you. Whether it's here or on the other side of the world, you've made us alive. May we experience that life. And not just experience that life, may we give it away. I thank you for the privilege we have as thirsty, hungry, longing, yearning human beings. Human beings who know they've got a home but don't know how to get there. I thank you for the privilege that we have to know where home is and to know home is you and for that eternal life to be something for right now as well as later. I pray this in the name of the one who is way and truth and also life. Amen.